In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people have been leaving New York City for greener pastures, whether it be for a day trip or something more permanent. But even within the big city, you can find greener pastures. And we're not just talking about Central and Prospect Parks. New York City is home to a working farm with animals and everything. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up, we'll pay a virtual visit to the Queens County Farm Museum. We have hens here, we have goats, we have alpaca, we have two steer, Jethro and Dexter, and pigs, and did I say the sheep also? <laughs> but first, my interview with Courtney Wade, who lives on a farm in the Catskills in upstate New York. Courtney is a chef, photographer, graphic designer, and the author of a new cookbook called The Catskills Farm to Table. Thanks so much for joining us, Courtney. Thank you for having me. So you live on a farm in upstate New York, right? I do. Where exactly? We are located in Jefferson, New York, which not many people know about. It's a very, very small town in Schoharie County. Did you grow up there? I did. What was it like to grow up on a farm? My parents originally had a dairy farm when I was a baby. So I experienced that for like the first four years of my life. And then we were in Jefferson, and now we just have a small hobby farm. We grow all our own beef, chicken, pork, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It's a completely unique experience to not ever have to buy meat from the store and to tell people that. <laughs> and your brother is a hunter too, right? Um, Actually, I am. Both my brothers are and my dad are all hunters. You're all hunters. You're <laughs> yes, all hunters. Well, wow. so what do you hunt for? Except your mom. What do you hunt for primarily? Um, I hunt for deer and I've also attempted goose and duck hunting. And both of my brothers are really into the waterfowl hunting as well. And I would imagine that informs your recipes. Yes. <laughs> What's an example? Uh, there's a few venison recipes, actually, in my cookbook. And I also have a recipe for goose. What's that recipe, the goose recipe? It's a goose au poivre. So it has a peppercorn cream sauce served over seared duck breast or goose breasts. Wow, that sounds delightful. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> It would appear that your cookbook is coming out at a very good time with more and more people spending time in the kitchen because of the coronavirus quarantines. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the kitchen myself, but I found like when I was not working, I was in the kitchen even more than I usually am. So I'm hoping that that's the case. How much experimenting do you do in the kitchen? Um, a lot. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always brainstorming, honestly, like I'll be doing something. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. So I'll like write it in a note in my phone to like test it. And I actually just got a job working as, a, as one of three chefs at a restaurant that just opened in Jefferson. So I'm working with my best friend and her mom in the kitchen there. So we're always cooking. That's super exciting. Huh? Is that your first venture into a restaurant? It is. Um, and I didn't honestly think that's where my career path would go, but that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm not complaining. I mean, we're only four weeks in, but we'll see. Your cookbook tells the story of a bunch of farms in the Catskills. What is one of the more inspirational stories you like to share? For that whole thing, I really wanted to just focus on 
separate farms and restaurants in the area that all kind of had their own like specialty. Um, probably my favorite one to work on was Buck Hill Farm in Jefferson, New York, because um, I've just known them forever and working with them was just so much fun. And then, I don't know, it it's a lot of fun to just kind of tell people like how certain industries work. Like not everyone knows how the dairy industry works or raising animals or the maple syrup industry. So theirs was a lot of fun to work with. What are among the questions you typically get when people find out that you grew up on a farm, that you live on a farm? Um, I don't get a ton of questions locally. Um, those usually come from people who don't know about that kind of stuff. Honestly, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes me and my brothers, they'll be like, oh my God, you like, go out and eat animals from the woods like that's so disgusting like why would you do that or oh but isn't it safer to buy meat from the store and at that point you just kind of have to be like okay well the animals raised in a fantastic atmosphere they're out on pasture they get chickens get scraps from the house all that kind of stuff and then you just say well the meat's still processed in a, you know, slaughterhouse, like that kind of stuff. And growing your vegetables in a garden is better than buying them from the store. You just have to educate people without, you know, rolling your eyes, I guess. <laughs> you also forage too, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, I've been getting really a lot more experimental with that. Like, I haven't really dove into the whole mushroom thing because that's a little scary because things look like things you can eat, but they're poisonous. So I kind of leave that thing, that kind of stuff to the experts. But like, you know, going out and picking berries in the pasture as opposed to picking berries from the store or, you know, springtime is a lot of fun because the garden isn't growing, but there's stuff that's growing wild that you can pick and use so that's a lot of fun what's a stinging nettle because i know that's something that you can forage for <laughs> um a lot of people notice it when they weed whack it and they're not wearing pants and their legs get all like um you know red and irritated <laughs> but it grows very heavily up here and it's in the shade and it's just it's like spinach but when you pick it you have to use gloves because it actually has stinging stingers on it so when you cook it you just have to make sure that the stingers go away with the steam and heat <laughs> now how do you know hey that's something that i think i can cook with um i actually have a few books all about foraging in the northeast so like someone could say, oh, that's edible. And I'll always look it up and look at multiple pictures before I pick it. So I know exactly what I am picking that it is safe to eat. The book is broken up by season. You reference spring. How different are the flavors coming out of the Catskills over the course of the year? Um, well, spring is definitely a lot of your just fresh greens. Like if you look through my book, like the first Part is just all almost all green I have like milkweed greens I have rhubarb garlic scape peas and then as you move into summer it's tomatoes and blueberries and corn so the colors kind of change as you move through the book 
And then obviously, as you get into winter, you're dealing with like a lot of soups and just like more like meats and pumpkin and that kind of stuff. There are amazing photographs of the dishes in this book. Are these your photographs too? Yes. All of the photos in the book are mine. They just make my mouth water as I flip through <laughs> the pages. No question Thank about you. that. So you must have spent a lot of time in the kitchen putting this book together. Yeah. Um, I would make something and then I'd eat it and be like, oh, I have to take a photo of that. So then I'd have to make it again and plate it and bring it outside or put it somewhere nice to take the photo. So I would have photos for stuff. And a lot of the photos are just ingredient photos, like just plain pictures of tomatoes or squash or something. Because I really did want to emphasize the idea of the actual ingredient being the star of the dish. Now, speaking of ingredients, a lot of people, of course, just simply go to their grocery store, not thinking really about where their food is coming from. This is all the opposite. This is farm to table. Why don't you talk to us a little bit more specifically about the concept farm to table? Okay. Um, the concept farm to table, I mean, I know the term is kind of overused, but it's still so prevalent and I don't think the term is going to go away because it's so important to know where your food comes from. Um, and that's just how I grew up, just knowing where your food comes from and where it should come from. Like, of course, I go to the grocery store and get ingredients that I don't have. But the whole idea of just knowing your farmer or producer and trying to source locally or growing as much as you can in your own garden or space is just so important and buying from local producers is just so crucial for the local economy and then just the flavors are so much better when they're fresh from the fields or fresh from the garden in my opinion. And really you can do it anywhere. If you live in New York City, you can grow on your balcony, right? I was recently visiting my sister-in-law in, in Wappingers Falls. She doesn't have a ton of space, but she gave me all mm -hmm. of this fresh basil that she was growing in her kitchen. Yeah, herbs are the easiest, and there is like nothing better than a fresh herb to just boost a dish. What is your advice for stocking your refrigerator and pantry with the freshest ingredients? Like, what are the must-haves? You should always have this in your refrigerator and your pantry. Um, I find myself cooking with just fresh cloves of garlic in almost any savory dish. Like, a, our onion and garlic are probably like the base of a dish. Um, right now, it's, it's kind of in a tough growing season because it was cold for so, like, we had a frost in June where we are. Wow. Yeah, so we had stuff planted, but it was just kind of stuck. Um, so, like, right now, you have fresh lettuce, which makes such, you wouldn't think it would make such a difference in a salad, but fresh greens are always good, and I think a salad with every dinner is just a great idea. So there are so many recipes in this book. Are they all your own? Are some of them passed down in your family? Um, a lot of them are mine, and a lot of them are just meals that we've cooked as a family. And my mom helped a ton with that, just, you know, coming up with different things. And some of them are her recipes that we've worked on together. But, yeah, just a lot of stuff that we created and that I created as well. 
I love that you have recipes in the book that serve as few as one person, like the puff pancake for one. Oh, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the puff pancake. Um, well, whenever I have extra time in the morning to make, you know, a decent breakfast, it's just so good. And it's great because it changes with the seasons. Like you can just put maple syrup and butter on it or it's strawberry season now. So you could just put some strawberries on top and yeah, it's a great breakfast or a dessert. <laughs> or a dessert. Yeah, I was going to say you could certainly have it uh, after dinner if you'd yeah. like to. It looks that delicious. You say in the book that pasta is your go-to dinner anytime you cook for yourself. Why is that? Why pasta? I don't know. Pasta is just such a good vehicle for any ingredient. Like I could, I have a bunch of garlic scape pesto that I made this weekend and it's great over pasta or walk in the garden and there's zucchini, just saute that and throw it with pasta and some cheese. Like, I don't know. It's so good. Oftentimes people who don't cook a lot use the excuse, I don't have time to cook. But that doesn't necessarily need to be an issue, right? These are not all time-consuming recipes. You can make them pretty quickly. I feel like I have zero time, but I'll come home at like nine o'clock and be like, okay, what am I making for dinner? Just because, I don't know, when you cook for yourself, it makes you feel just so much better after a long day. It's better than just, you know, microwaving something or not eating at all, which a lot of people do. What would you say is one of the simpler recipes in the book? Um, I don't know. A lot of them are very like little ingredients. So, and I have a lot of vegetable based ingredients too. Um, I don't know. I have a lot of side dishes as well, but I'm trying to think of an easier, simple recipe. I don't know. None of them are super in depth unless you get into like the desserts, which, you know, require oven time, but None of them are super, you know, time consuming. How long did it take you to put the book together? How long have you been working on it? Um, it actually started as my senior project for college in the graphic design program. And um, at SUNY Coble School, where I went, the last two semesters are considered your senior seminar and um, you're asked to come up with a brand and then design every little aspect that goes with that brand. And I had gone to Cobleskill and gotten my associate's degree in agricultural business, and I wanted to tie the ag with the graphic design. So I decided to do a farm. And one of my elements was this cookbook that I was going to use, like all these farm to table recipes. And so I worked on it for two semesters and took a lot of the photos and came up with a lot of the recipes and had it printed by this company that does like books. And when everyone was looking at it at my senior show, they were like, wow, you should actually get this published. And I had no idea even how to go about that. So a few people saw it and they got me in contact with Hatherley Press and they were like, we'd love to publish your cookbook. So after that, I started just adding things and that's when I came up with the idea to add the farms and restaurants as features, met with all those people. And yeah, so it's been probably a two year process altogether. That's fantastic though, that it came out of a school project. How wonderful. Yeah. 
The book tells the story of the Phoenicia Diner in Phoenicia, New York. What's special about that diner? Why did you include it? It's one of my favorite places to stop if I'm in the area or when I go skiing as like an after ski uh, you know, place to eat. But um, they feature so many local producers on their menu and they have a menu that goes with the season. So I just thought they were an absolute must to include in the farm to table book. You also included Solinsky's Smokehouse. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, we've actually known, they actually live down the road from me. Um, and they work with local farmers to help them produce fantastic charcuterie and sausage and meat products. And they're definitely an asset to the local area. So I included them and actually their recipe featured in their section, which is called the Catskill Carbonara is delicious. I was reading an article in the New York Times recently that said a growing number of New York City residents desperate for more space and fresh air are now heading to the Catskills. Are you concerned at all that that could change the character of the area or drive up prices too much or make these restaurants too busy? Um, I mean, that's always a topic. And my friends are actually talking the other day. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you're going to put Jefferson on the map. And I'm like, oh, I don't really want to, though. I like it how it is. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's people who come up are definitely crucial for our local economy because they do go to restaurants and they do shop local and they do go to our farm stands. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I just, of course, I don't want it to be too populated up here. But most of these people don't stay up here year round because... I mean, the winters are pretty harsh and there's not as much to do as there is in the summer and spring months. But I mean, I don't know. I think they it is good that people are coming here because there's more opportunity for businesses like Solinsky's and like these restaurants to thrive. Are there recipes in the book that you're more likely to make over and over again that are your staples? I have a few recipes. Actually, one of them is the chicken liver pate, which most people are probably turned off by. But we butcher our own chickens. So I always save all the livers and then freeze them and make them usually for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And probably my favorite recipe in the book is the second to last recipe, which is the maple cheesecake, which it's in the winter section, but it's good year round. The book is The Catskills Farm to Table. Courtney Wade, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Courtney Wade is a chef, photographer, graphic designer, and cookbook author. Check her out at CourtneyMWade.com. Now on to a farm perhaps in the unlikeliest of places, New York City. The Queens County Farm Museum grows a whole lot of crops, has farm animals. It's a farm, after all. Jennifer walden Weprin is the executive director. We checked in with her via Zoom. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Yes, here virtually in this world that we are in now, but glad that we can be together on Zoom. How surprised are people to learn that there is a working farm in New York City? 
Yeah, you know, um, we get a lot of attention on our great programs and our events, and we get over 400,000 visitors a year, almost 10 million since 1975 when the nonprofit was established to preserve and interpret the site. But people are still really surprised that there is a working farm right here in New York City on 47 acres. Yeah, I was going to say, not a small farm, 47 acres, quite large. Yeah, it's it's really large, and we're can, and I'm relatively new to the organization. Uh, the previous executive director retired after almost 30 years of service, and so I joined in October of 2018. And since I joined the organization, you know, it's it's always changes. It's hard, change is great. And so I get to approach things with a different eye and we're trying to optimize more space on the property dedicated to agriculture, um, connect visitors more deeply to that. What's the history of the farm? What story does it tell? Great question. Uh, the farm is one of the longest continually farm sites in New York State, dating back to 1697. And so that's over 300 years of farming right here in New York City. And it's still happening, which is hard to say. Um, and the story is quite interesting. In, 1970, in 1926, the farm um, was flipped to a real estate person and that person sold it to the, to New York State and so New York State owned it from 1926 until 1975 and they continued to they farm the property during that period of time in the 70s they decided to maybe get out of the farming business and were looking to sell and so the community here because there's a historic house on the property that goes back to seven was built in 1772 um, they were so concerned about the preservation of the site that they organized and through a land swap between New York State and New York City. That's how the city acquired the property and how the cultural nonprofit was established by New York State law to to continue the work of, of preserving the place. So it's really a great history. It talks about how it, it always references how important community is um, and then always being in touch with the most basic parts of our community, our environment, the land, where does our food come from? Um, if you're a fourth grader and you don't really like green food, you come here and you look at it differently and you may even get a chance to taste it and enjoy it. it, it, when, it when peas are freshly picked, they taste like candy. That said, what types of programs do you offer at the farm? Before we had these business interruptions and this horrible you know, crisis that we're all peeling through together. Um, we, again, as I mentioned, we brought about 400,000 people through the site. About 130,000 of those are school children from New York City predominantly, but also Long Island and Westchester. And so we have great STEM-based curriculum that connects them to the environment, to the food that they eat, to the curriculum in school. That's customized to meet different learning needs um, and also the type of school that's joining you know, coming here to visit the site. Um, and besides the education programs, which we call school to farm education programs, clever, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so we have a whole menu of public events, uh, the Queens County Fair that would have been in its 38th year. We continued it as is this year. And we can talk about that in a moment. Um, we have the um, Native American powwow that we do here that also I think was our 39th year of that. We have some program that goes back almost since the inception of the organization, um, 18th century tavern night. So there's no matter where you come from and why you're coming here, there's a way to connect to the site. And, and all, everything is always based off of the mission of the organization and, and connecting people to health and wellness and environment, STEM curriculum, and, and learning a little history along the way. So how can people still connect with you in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, yeah. So now here we are. <laughs> We're yeah. not in January anymore. And um, and so, you know, when we shut down in early March, we, we 
we pivoted pretty quickly and created barn cam programming. And it was a tune-in um, segment uh, at 4 p.m. every day on our social media channels, frankly, because our website is being developed and, and didn't really have the capability to support it there. And so those platforms were, were, were the mechanism to deliver all this content, whether it was a cooking demo, a tour of the 18th century house, historic farmhouse, crafting demos, projects for kids at home, photos of our animals or video of our, our goats being walked across the site, all kinds of things. So something for everybody. Some things were more in depth, others were more peripheral. Um, and so uh, that's really how we continued as we found our way through the crisis. And now here we are about to reopen on August 2nd and we're reimagining our programming. Folks came here in groups in masses for these massive events. So now we're sort of twisting them a little bit on their side and we're gonna present the essence of County Fair on, I think it's gonna be Sundays. I'll have to get back to you in the, when we confirm the date um, in September. And so we'll have much lower attendance numbers for those dates. Those are, typically our site is free and open to the public but those dates will be paid admission Days. And so we'll we'll pair back. We won't be able to have the rides or the petting zoo, but we'll be able to infuse some rich programming, educational content, including crop circles for our guests, so that they know they can sit in their circle safely and they'll be within six feet of any other crop circle. So um, just a way to connect people. We we all I, I think from my experience interacting, whether it's with the public through the organization or my own personal life, um, we're all looking to do something, and we all feel much more comfortable doing it outside. Yeah, no um, question. So about no masks that. are required. Social distancing. Obviously, all these important rules we need to follow to keep each other safe and healthy. Um, but this is a great place for that, and and I'm I'm eager to share it because you know we've been squirreled away, no pun intended, um, <laughs> working here and enjoying it ourselves as we get ready to reopen. How much is grown on the farm? How varied are the crops? Oh, so much. I'm sorry I didn't have that list in front of me, but it's over 200 varieties of fruits and vegetables and herbs that we grow, tens of thousands of pounds of food that we grow. Um, we sell them at our farm stand on site, and that's open. That is open now just at the front gate without allowing people onto the site, Wednesdays through Sunday, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. We also have a, lo a location at Jamaica Hospital in partnership with that organization, and that is on Fridays, I believe, 1030 to 3.30 p.m. And so there are plenty. And again, you know, that's really just another feature of what we do here and how important we are. One of the longest continuing farm sites in New York State. So that, that's just representative of that. Honey and eggs too, right? Not just fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Honey and eggs. And actually during our co the initial phase of the COVID shutdown, we partnered with a food pantry in the Palmanac houses. And because we had no way to sell our produce, and, and frankly, our organization is very dependent on our revenue, obviously, to, to manage the site and preserve it and interpret it. Um, but we didn't have a way to continue that in the early stages. So we were able to, you know, create some lemonade out of lemons. And we donated about 660 dozen eggs and 1300 pounds of produce to those uh, to the food pantry. And now I'm, it's, I'm in an interesting position of we really were proud of that work and excited in a way that we were able to do that. How do we continue that now that our farm stands open and we, we do need to generate some income, but how do we continue that good work? So we're working on that. I hope to have a solution. Besides the goats, what other types of animals do you have on the farm? We have hens here. We have goats. We have alpaca. We have two steer, Jethro and Dexter and pigs. And did I say the sheep also? <laughs> 
So in addition to everything else, Jennifer, you have a corn maze, right? Yeah, actually, it's growing right behind me here as we speak on Zoom. Um, yeah, each year we, we bring the amazing maze maze to New York City. Um, last year, we stole the Unisphere from Flushing Meadow Corner Park don't tell. And we created it here in about three acres of corn. Um, we got a lot of visitors. And what we realized going into our proposed reopening plans during this COVID period um, is that that is an event that we can continue. We, we made the, going into this season, we made the paths wider. Um, we had this really cute game board and clue pieces that you would find within throughout the maze. That's now on an app, not such a bad idea or an adjustment either. Um, and so like the stock talk in the beginning will be signage instead of having somebody amplified speaking to you. So um, stay tuned for the shape of this year's maze, but it's international. And what's the website for people to learn more? Queensfarm.org. Jennifer, thanks so much. Thank you. This was lovely. Jennifer Walden Weprin is the executive director of the Queens County Farm Museum. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Big thanks to our producer, Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. We'll catch you next time. 